Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the History of Skipton series of podcasts. With me, Ian Lockwood, author of the book, The History of Skipton. Today we're going to look at Lady Anne Clifford. If you read any tourist guidebook or even history book, you'll see she's presented as a hero. The woman who rebuilt Skipton Castle after being partially pulled down by Oliver Cromwell. Another portrayal is as a feminist icon who battled discrimination in the courts to fight for her legal inheritance. Whereas both these depictions are essentially true, there is a third side. Put bluntly, if you lived in Skipton when Lady Anne Clifford was Queen of the Castle, then life would have been very uncomfortable indeed. But first, we need to explain who she was. Remember my earlier podcast about George Clifford, the third Earl of Cumberland, the Pirate of the Caribbean? Well, she was his daughter. George died in the week of the gunpowder plot in 1605, and it was to be almost a half century before Anne took over his role as the Lord of Skipton. If I describe George Clifford as a playboy, his brother Francis was the country gentleman. When George died with no male heir, Francis inherited the Clifford titles and lands. Unlike his brother, Francis shunned the royal court and stayed in Skipton for his entire life managing the family estates. He never risked his cash like his brother did. Indeed, Francis lent his older brother large sums of his own wealth. While he never achieved the fame of his brother, dour but efficient Francis was notable for his role in the life of George's only child, Lady Anne Clifford, a heroine of the feminist movement. In his will, George had left Skipton to his brother Francis and then Francis's son, Henry. The Clifford lands in Westmoreland were to remain in the hands of George's widow to revert to Francis upon her death. And then, when Francis's son died, then Anne would inherit everything, providing he had no male heir. The will showed George held a firm, though illogical, belief that his brother's son would have no male heirs, and that the estates, preserved by his brother's care, would come to his daughter in the long run. But so it actually came to pass. Francis, having largely rebuilt the family's fortunes after his brother's extravagance, died at Skipton in January 1641. His son Henry died with no male heir during the Civil War, and the Clifford inheritance duly passed to Anne, 
then 51 years old, thus ending a long, protracted legal battle. Anne had been born in January 1590 in Skipton and was the only child of George who did not die young. As she was brought up at the Royal Court and at the Clifford's London home in Clerkenwell, she barely knew Skipton, but it was certainly on her mind. Soon after George died, his widow, Anne's mother, disputed Anne's exclusion from the inheritance and lodged lawsuits on her behalf. In 1607, Anne and her mother visited the estate of the north and were denied entry to the castle at Skipton by the servants of Francis. She was literally left standing on the doorstep. The castle gate slammed in her face. It was to be 40 years before she came back to Skipton. In 1609, Anne Clifford married Richard Sackville, the Earl of Dorset, who was keen, due to his debts, for her to accept a cash settlement offered by Francis to drop her legal claim. She refused to do so, but she suffered a blow when, in 1617, King James I, who had been asked to arbitrate, ruled against her argument that as the only surviving child, she, not her uncle, should inherit the Clifford lands. This ruling was known as the Award of King James. James ordered Francis Clifford to pay £20,000 compensation, not to Anne, but to the Earl of Dorset, of which £3,000 was conditional on Anne formally accepting the ruling. But Anne refused to do so. This refusal to accept male claims on her inheritance is what has singled her out for approval down the centuries. We don't know what her husband thought of getting just £17,000 rather than £20,000 compensation. In 1622, Anne's husband Dorset died, and after the death of King James in 1625, Anne resurrected her legal claim. She had also remarried. Her new husband was the Earl of Pembroke. He was one of the most powerful nobles in the land. As the King's Chamberlain, he controlled access to King Charles I. Anne also played a central role at court and was a close confidant of the Queen. This closeness to the royal couple was a serious threat to Francis Clifford's ownership of Skipton. If only Anne could get the award of King James overturned. But the case became bogged down in legal arguments until Francis died, soon followed by his son. Upon the death of her cousin Henry, the Clifford lands should now be hers under the terms of her father's will. She obtained most of the manor of Skipton and Silsden, but the award of King James meant that large parts of Craven now belonged to the Earl of Cork, by reason of his marriage to Henry Clifford's daughter. The Craven lands outside Skipton had been handed over to the Earl of Cork as part of the dowry for Henry Clifford's daughter. Thus, the Corks owned extensive properties and also had rights on tithes. And here I need to explain about tithes. 
Tithes were a tax of one-tenth of all produce and were payable to the church. In Skipton's case, the church was Christ Church Oxford, but rather than face the considerable administrative burden of heading north to collect them, Christ Church Oxfords simply leased them out for a fee, with the collector paying a fixed price and pocketing the rest. And the lease was in the hands of the Corks. Professor Richard Spence, the expert on this period, commented, The tithes lease gave the Corks an intrusive right. Their officers were entitled to enter Anne's lands, choose every tenth sheaf of mown corn, the best if they could get away with it, and cart them to their tithe barns for threshing and milling, the work normally being done for them by Anne's tenants. So you can see that it must have been galling for Anne, who was clearly protective of her rights. The Corks were miles away, and Anne simply ignored their right to one-tenth of all produce. She even seized some of their property, including the hunting lodge at Barden Towers. This was Clifford property, she declared, ignoring the fact that it had been given away by her cousin upon the marriage of his daughter. And Anne also began to assert vigorously her own rights as the new landlord of Skipton. And it's here that my description of her as a very unpopular lord who made her tenant's life a misery is founded. Anne was particularly unsympathetic to tenants who had trouble paying their rent and was stony-hearted in her dealings with the local population. Soon after she took over the Skipton lands, she put lawyers to work sorting out rents, many of which were long in arrears as canny locals took the opportunity to default in the confusion of the civil war and the siege of Skipton. As a result, rental income from Skipton alone rose from £600 a year in 1646 to £1,052 in 1652 and £1,752 in 1665. That large increase in income, almost three times, was coming from the local population. Anne also had the right to entry fines. An entry fine was a payment to the landlord when a new tenant took over a lease, even if the lease was simply passing from a deceased father to a son. Anne's father, George, had got rid of a good number of these in exchange for lump sums to pay his debts, but around half still existed. Fines were increased significantly when Anne came to Skipton, bringing her a large sum. She raised £4,205 by entry fines in 1654. And while her cousin and uncle had been relatively lax in collecting rents, Anne was quick to seize goods from defaulters and then evict them from their land no matter what the reason was for her tenants' straitened circumstances. Professor Spence commented, She contrasts certainly with the known leniency of Earls Francis and Henry, who stood out as unusually considerate towards their craven tenantry. Over the years, Anne has been portrayed around Skipton as something of a saint for two reasons. 
One, her championing of a woman's right to inherit on the same terms as a man. And two, her rebuilding of Skipton Castle, after it was partly demolished because of its royalist stance in the Civil War. You'll see her described as the saviour of Skipton. And some work have been hagiographies rather than neutral biographies. One even compares her gentleness to, in her portraits to the Mona Lisa. In fact, she was a hard, oppressive landlady who saw Skipton as a cash cow. William Harbert Dawson, the first historian of Skipton, writing in the Victorian era, was one of the first to see through her, remarking that her notion of business matters would put many a shrewd masculine intelligence into deep shade. He quotes her writing to a steward about one tenant farmer behind with his rent. I charge and give you attorney forthwith to take goods for the said rent, and if it be not paid, I will use the strictest course I can to turn him out of the farm. Anne did a lot of turning out tenants who fell upon hard times. Not quite the said, some would have you believe. An example of her bullying manner took place in Silsden, where she built a new water-driven corn mill to challenge the right of the existing mill. Mills, where tenants were required by clauses in their leases to have their corn ground at the Lord's Mill, were very profitable. In Skipton, tenants had to go to the corn mill on Ellerbeck and faced huge fines if they tried sourcing a cheaper mill or grinding their harvest surreptitiously at home. In Skipton, this right was transferred to the leaseholder of the corn mill in return for a high rent. But in Silsden, the right to grind corn had passed to Bolton Priory. But when Bolton Priory was dissolved during Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries, the Silsden rights were sold off and bought by an affluent local called Hugh Currer. Anne's construction of a new corn mill and insistence upon her tenants using it caused litigation and a power struggle in which the poor residents of, Skip of Silsden were caught in the middle. Currer had been a staunch supporter of the parliamentarian cause in the Civil War and his residence, Kildwick Hall, had been used as a base for the Roundheads during the siege of Skipton Castle. But... The Civil War was over, and it was now payback time, and Anne's target, the Currers, was to cause difficulty for her tenants in Silsden. In the end, it was litigation she lost, the court ruling that Currer had the right to mill corn in the Silsden locality. S Professor Spence describes Anne as an exceptionally disturbing presence in Silsden, and says the community was plunged into turmoil, as she fined them if they used Curra's mill to produce their flour and charged them heavily for using her own mill. It was not just in Silsden that Anne's policy proved difficult for the local inhabitants. In Skipton, she began to assert her rights against her relatives, the Cork family. Remember, Lady Cork was the daughter of her cousin, Henry Clifford, the last Earl of Cumberland. Lady Cork's father and grandfather, 
had bought up land and buildings after Anne's father had died, and therefore these properties did not form part of her father's will. They belonged to Lady Cork, or, or to be more precise, her husband, the Earl of Cork. These properties constituted perhaps up to a quarter of the town, and Anne wanted them. While she remained on cordial terms with the Earl and his wife, she made it known that she was to take legal action to take control of the properties. Her tactics were always to take a stance on a symbolic issue and bring legal proceedings against the unfortunate tenant rather than the landlords, i.e. the corks. In Skipton, the symbol was Winterwell Hall. The site of this hall was close by today's Belmont Bridge, and in the 17th century it was a tower house lying just outside the town limit of Skipton. A large and partly fortified residence, it was occupied by Captain Henry Goodgeon, a former Royalist Army officer and wealthy trader in the town, who also leased other properties in the town from Anne. The significance of Winterwell was that it had been sold by the Cliffords more than a hundred years previously and was repurchased by Earl Francis in 1606. This meant it had never belonged to Anne's father and so did not form part of her inheritance. Even so, Anne insisted that Goodgen should sign a new lease for every one of his Skipton properties and that included Winterwell Hall. For years, the power struggle festered without coming to a head. Documents show that Anne and the Corks met on more than one occasion on quite amicable terms, but a claim on Cork properties was the elephant in the room. After various legal thrusts, the matter was brought to a head in July 1651, when Anne's officers entered the home of Goodgen's son in Skipton and claimed possession of all Goodgen land and property in the town. She claimed a legal action was not against the owners of the land, the Corks, but the tenants, the Goodgens. It was a highly dodgy action. The 17th century courts seemed no less tortuous than those of today. If anything, the painfully slow means of communication meant they were even slower in dispensing justice and documents being transported around the country for weeks before being considered meant that lawsuits and wrangles took many years to disengage. Anne ultimately lost, but she'd caused the poor Gudgeon family almost two decades of costs and lost revenue. Another example of Anne's forceful assertion of what she perceived to be her rights was shown by her attempt to purchase a four-acre site off Empsey Road in Skipton. It had been bought by Earl Henry from an Empsey landowner in 1641 for £40. Again, it was nothing to do with George's inheritance left to Anne and thus was technically part of the Cork inheritance. Nothing to do with... George's property. Anne wanted this land and she offered to buy it, but if she could not, then she threatened to build a wall round it, even at the cost of £80, to deny anyone access to the land. Her secretary wrote, 
She cares not a fart, which is her own expression. Just think about that a little more closely. She wanted to buy a plot of land for £40. But if she could not get it, she was prepared to pay twice that sum building a wall just to prevent the tenant having access. She got her land for a little over £40. Her personal secretary for 18 years, a man called George Sedgwick, wrote an autobiography in which he details a telling aspect of her determination to assert her rights. For 400 years, the tenants of Skipton Lands paid a total of 800 hens annually to the Lord. A clothier from Halifax called Murgatroyd acquired a property near Skipton, for which he was due to pay one hen as part of this 800 hens annually, which had been going on for four centuries. Murgatroyd thought it was ludicrous and refused to hand over a hen. Now, one hen might not seem much, but it was part of an ancient rite, and Anne took him to court, which ruled that the hen must be paid. She spent £200 in costs, but she got a hen. It was the principle which counted. One element in the power struggle which deeply frustrated Anne was the cork's right to the liberty of the wapentake of Staincliffe. This needs some explaining. A wapentake is an obscure administrative unit, although it still persists today as the magistrate's court in Skipton covers a district known as Staincliffe, including Skipton. In Anne's time, a wapentake was more important, and whoever owned the liberty took on the responsibilities carried out elsewhere by the sheriff. It was a source of authority, and the duties of a liberty included the execution of writs from the royal courts, the collection of royal revenues, and the collection of fees. Crucially, a bailiff acting on behalf of the liberty holder could make arrests under a royal warrant anywhere in the district, including Skipton and including the castle. There were no legal limits to the bailiff's powers of entering the castle to execute the king's writ. This had never been a problem when the liberty was held by the Cliffords. But after the fall of Skipton Castle in the Civil War, the need for a speedy stabilisation of local government was pressing, and thus the parliamentary government of Oliver Cromwell had allowed the Corks to take on the role as the heirs of Earl Henry. You may remember, the Cliffords were royalists, the Corks were parliamentarian supporters. To make matters worse, the Corks appointed one of Anne's tenants, who lived in Sturton, as their bailiff. The prospect of one of her tenants brazenly demanding entry into her castle and laying down the law to her was anathema to Anne, and she again resorted to the courts, asserting that she had a subright to serve all writs and legal processes in Skipton. The courts ruled against her. 
The Corks were to prove the long-term winners in all their legal struggles, and some of Anne's lawsuits simply petered out. But the disruption cannot have helped many townsfolk in Skipton, trying to recover from the Civil War. One of Anne Clifford's defendants was the famous author, Vita Sackville-West. Writing in the 1920s, she described her ancestor Anne Clifford as a tyrant. And she commented, Shrewdly calculating, and with the pugnacity of a fairground brawler, she had relished her overlordship in Craven. But most biographies have been laudatory, primarily because of her undeniable building works in Skipton. Both the castle and Holy Trinity Church had suffered during the Civil War, and the castle had been slighted, which is an expression which means partially knocked down, to prevent it becoming a centre for any possible royalist rising against the Oliver Cromwell regime in the future. There was no doubt that Anne was a wealthy landowner, and she was able to pour large sums into restoration projects to the benefit of local craftsmen and labourers. She lived for some time at the castle, in the octagonal tower on the Tudor extension to the east, doubtless keeping her beady eye on developments. Her, her rebuilding plans for the castle were not without opposition. Thomas Heber, a local wealthy landowner and a staunch parliamentarian, petitioned Parliament in 1657 for a stay of execution on the work in Skipton until a commission could report on what Anne's intentions were and whether she was really preparing for a royalist uprising which could threaten the state. Happily for the castle and the town today, the regime had enough on its plate and the petition was ignored. Anne carried on her work at great speed, clearing rubble and rebuilding the top two storeys of the castle. The roof was lower than before and not strong enough to bear the load of cannon as before. And although the gatehouse was restored, the outer walls were thinner and lower. Two partially demolished towers on the perimeter wall were not rebuilt and their remains can be seen as you walk up the Bailey today. It's worth remembering though that the extra revenues extorted from ordinary Skipton tenants and farmers paid for these repairs. Having rebuilt the castle, Anne left Skipton for the last time in 1667 and lived in retirement in Appleby, where she died in 1675. She was buried in Appleby, not Skipton, unlike her father and relatives, although this may have been political, i.e., a wish not to be buried with rivals like Francis, her uncle, and Henry, her cousin. And with her, the main Clifford line died out. So that's the story of Anne Clifford, an alternative view which perhaps doesn't portray her as just the saviour of Skipton and a great woman, but someone who made life rather unpleasant for Skiptonians at the time. Next time, I'll take the story up to the present day, explaining how, after Anne died, the castle was left to go to rack and ruin for almost 300 years, 
before being restored again, so that it's now one of the finest castles in the north of England. Thank you for listening. $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.